Well, good morning. Would you please uh, join me as I pray? Our Father, you are glorious. You, you shine forth with the perfection and brilliance and beauty of your character. It's who you are. And we, as a people, are drawing near this morning asking that you would speak to us, that you would give us ears to hear, and that you would use this text to expose our hearts where we are tempted towards grumbling, towards not trusting you with the circumstances of our lives. I pray that this morning this text would would come and speak to us, that your glory would confront and challenge and transform us into something different. And so we come as a people ready to hear from you, ready to be touched and transformed by you. Would you come and deal with us even now with your word open, with anticipation that your Holy Spirit is present. Help us to be faithful hearers and doers of your word. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite things that we have ever bought for any of our children is my 10-year-old Caleb's dirt bike. He has an electric dirt bike that he rides around our neighborhood like he, like he owns the whole space. He's got a little biker gang, a couple buddies that ride with him. They cruise the streets. It's got just enough shocks and just enough knobby tires that he can jump some curbs. And I mean, he's very cool. And uh, just yesterday, he came in and got me and said, Dad, it's making a weird noise and it's not going. And so I went out there and he turned the, you know, turned the ignition or, and uh, it was just the gears were grinding. I was like, well, that doesn't sound good. And uh, dad's not exactly a Mr. Fix-It. If you've been around, you've heard some stories about that. But I fixed this with a tool in my hand. I felt pretty great about it. Flipped it over, got under there. This was something, I could, this was something that I could fix. And so we got back up and running at Cot, where the gears were no longer grinding, but they were engaged, and he took off. And as he rode away, it it dawned on me that in many ways, the, the journey that we're on this morning, wrestling with the nature of grumbling, how it impacts our lives, that I think grumbling causes the gears of God's goodness to grind in our lives, to slow and grind to a halt. What we're gonna find in this text is that the people of God are right on the cusp of stepping into the full breadth of his goodness that he has designed and prepared especially for them, but their grumbling intersects, it interrupts, it slows the pace at which he wants to pour out his goodness into their hearts. It causes the gears of God's goodness to grind to a halt in this season in the life of Israel. See, it's what, it's what grumbling does to our hearts and our lives. It causes us to, to miss, to slow, to stifle the ways that God's goodness is at work in us. This is week three in a series called Show Me Your Glory. We're tracing a, an understanding of God's glory from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. And a few weeks ago, we saw that Moses had come to this recognition that God's glory is better than anything that the world has to offer. 
that the radiance of God's perfection and beauty, his brilliance that shines forth from the core of who he is, is why you and I exist. It's why we have air in our lungs. As we come to savor and enjoy and know God, he satisfies the deepest places of our soul. Moses came into contact with that. And last week, what we realized is it wasn't just an individual pursuit, but the experience of God's glory, the drawing near to the radiance of his perfection, we learned last week, is a communal engagement. We're all in, in the preparation, anticipation, and exaltation, the experience of God's glory. We're all a part of it. But this week, we learn that there is a, there's a risk and the fact that the experience of God's glory is a communal endeavor. And the risk is this, that when our hearts get sideways, when as a community we begin to grumble or complain or we start on that spiral, that it, it stifles our ability to see and enjoy God's glory. It, it puts his goodness at bay. And so this morning, what we're talking about is this idea that grumbling causes the gears to grind on God's goodness, but thankfully, Glory will confront and transform our grumbling. So today we wanna to understand what is grumbling? How does it operate in our hearts? And what would it look like for the glory of God to confront that and to change it into something else entirely? Something that doesn't stifle God's goodness, but something that will welcome and facilitate God's goodness. You with me? Let's see if we can make sense of that together from Numbers 14. And, and let's, let's look at the first four verses. I think these first four verses for us are gonna set up for us just how grumbling is interrupting God's goodness. And it'll also give us a working definition of what grumbling is, how it functions in our lives. Look at verses one through four with me. It says this, then all the congregation raised a loud cry. The people wept that night. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? They said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. The context of this text running right up to it is that the, the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt Moses had come and by the power of God, he had helped set them free. They went through the Red Sea on dry ground into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, God invited them to Mount Sinai. He gave them the law. He said, this is how life is going to function best. And then he said, now let's move towards the promised land. They left Sinai and they're moving through the wilderness, arriving at the edge of the promised land. And in the previous chapter, 12 spies have been sent out to look at the land that's flowing with all of God's richness, milk and honey and all the goodness that God has to give them. And 10 out of 12 have come back with a bad report. And what they've said is there's giants in the land. They're gonna squash us like bugs. This is not gonna work. We are in a bad spot. And if we can be honest, circumstantially, they're in a bad spot. They're in the wilderness. They have at times struggled to find water. They are a vagabond people stuck out in the desert and they're looking at fortified cities with large warriors that are well fed and ready to defend their land. This is a tough spot. And that's what they're declaring. 10 out of 12 are saying, we can't do it. Caleb and Joshua say, no, 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 God's going to help us. 
And right on the heels of that report are these verses, the people weeping, grumbling, starting to say, we should just go back. We would have been better off in Egypt. We're gonna die right here. You see, they begin to grumble in a way that is going to interrupt all that God was intending to do, all of the goodness that was ready to be poured into their lives. And as they grumble, we kind of experience an anatomy of grumbling. We get to see what is it exactly and how does it function in our lives. These verses provide just four simple things that I think would help us diagnose grumbling in our own hearts, help us to see how it functions in the community. The first thing that they're doing is that they've got the vision of a mole. You know, you you ever seen a picture of a mole, seen a mole, you know, their eyes, you barely can even see them because they're kind of like this, you know? And they're so nearsighted that they can barely see past the end of their snout, colorblind, unable to pick up on any of the nuance, the beauty that's happening beyond them. They just see the dirt right in front of their face. These people are incredibly nearsighted in this moment. They do have a very difficult set of circumstances and all they can see is those circumstances. And they're going, we're done. They're monsters, they're giants over there. We're little grasshoppers, everything is done. We're coming on. Their grumbling starts with their nearsightedness, their inability to see anything other than the hard that is before them. And if you pay attention to your own heart, the places where you spiral into grumbling, It often starts with a particular relationship, an experience, an instance that feels like it's just right on top of you, and you start being unable to see around it. It casts a shadow over everything. It's like you put on a lens that's colored by this experience, and now you see all of life through it. You've become so nearsighted that grumbling seems to be the appropriate response because this current circumstance is defining your life. The second thing that they do is they, they have the despair like Eeyore. You know, Eeyore, we love Winnie the Pooh at my house. Oh, Eeyore. He is convinced, even when things are going really well, that surely tomorrow it's going to be all bad. Right? Because the idea is the circumstance, the current circumstance and nearsightedness starts to shape the way we see everything, and so we begin to despair. We begin to spiral into a sense of it's always going to be this way. These people who arguably in the span of human history have seen the power and saving grace of God on display publicly, they have seen it more pointedly maybe than anyone else ever. They literally have the pillar of cloud and fire still hovering over them and directing them. Yet, in that space, they have begun to believe he's cruel. This was a cruel trick. He never intended our good. He just brought us out here to to mistreat us. And the temptation where one particular circumstance grabs a hold of you and starts to reshape your view of life is that you begin to spiral and underneath it you go, "Uh uh-oh, maybe God's cruel. Maybe he's forgotten me. If we can just admit it, some of life's circumstances cause us, especially in the middle of the night, the early hours of the morning, We wake and the circumstance is still present with us and we're tempted to start going, maybe God's forgotten me. Maybe we're just prey. We've just been led out here to be devoured. You see, grumbling moves from nearsightedness to the despair of Eeyore. And then the third thing is, it begins to rewrite history with a crooked pen. When the present circumstance begins to shape 
our internal response that we're spiraling and going, God must be cruel. We then look back and we've got this like, this bias that we're reading everything through and we start seeing it everywhere. Oh yeah, he did. He was cruel to me there and there. They're looking back and they're going, Egypt was better than this. Their history is pitiful. They don't remember the pains of their slavery, the awful reality of being under the boot of Pharaoh. They are so bad at history in this moment that they think Pharaoh is a better leader than Yahweh who is continuing to provide for them and lead them. Which brings them to their fourth reality that their grumbling causes division. They're ready to turn on their leaders. The group is coming apart. The grumbling heart that shows up in nearsightedness and in despair and rewriting history causes fracturing in relationships. It breaks us apart when we give in to the grumbling heart. There's maybe more to be said about what grumbling is, but this text supplies that working definition. And it raises the question, where do you see it in your own heart and life? Where do we feel those circumstances that press in and we allow them to begin to tell our story in such that, that we spiral? Um, there's been plenty of this, these moments over the last year as we have wrestled through family health and sickness and stays in the hospital. And even again in this last week with the unknown, as many of you have heard about our, about our facility, not knowing where we'll be meeting to worship after September 17th. That was an unknown curveball. And, I can take any of those plot points in my heart and at 2 a.m. I can be on this train. I can, I can begin to grumble and wonder, God, well, where were you here or here? Um, they can begin to reshape my vision. They can be like lenses that color everything. The question is, where, where is that temptation real for you to begin to grumble? We see in Caleb and Joshua an inverted picture in verses five through 10. It's, it's in many ways the direct inverse, the opposite of this picture. Just very briefly, I wanna sketch it out for you before we move on. Look at verses five through 10 with me, where it says, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land. They are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. You see, Caleb and Joshua had an inverted view. They weren't in this moment allowing the circumstances to define them. They didn't have the vision of a mole. They had like this beautiful eagle eye of faith that saw beyond the current circumstances and said, the Lord is fighting for us. These people are bred for us. He will certainly conquer. What they knew is that he had promised that he would and they were anchored to the promises of God. And then did you hear Caleb? He wasn't despairing like Eeyore, thinking God was cruel. But what he said is, I think God delights in us. He is operating from an assumption that is well-founded based off of their history that God delights in us. He wants to do good for us. So he's operating in hope. 
There are excellent historians that know that God has conquered far greater enemies than these. And as a result, they're calling the people to humble unity. No, stay together. God can do this. Let's not fracture in this moment. So, we see the anatomy of, of grumbling. We see it in these verses. We see it from looking at it from the inverse. And, and the question is, where might it be true of us? We all recognize there's moments where grumbling is true of us. And it's with that recognition that I want to invite you into this moment in the text where glory descends and confronts grumbling. The brilliance the radiance, the perfection of God's character, when it settles down into a community, like when when we are all together aware that God is with us, it's like it shines a bright light into the dark closet of grumbling and all of a sudden we're like, oh, that's what's happening there. Glory confronts grumbling and then it transforms it into something beautiful. And I wanna explore how that works in this text. How does glory confront grumbling? three ways. The first thing that glory is going to do as it confronts grumbling is it's going to reveal what it really is. We've just defined it in part by its activity, but God shows up, and when the bright light of God's glory shines into our hearts and circumstances, all of a sudden we go, oh, grumbling is is different than I fully realized. Hear how he says it in verse 11 and 12. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? You see, in in verse 11 and 12, the following verse, he says, I'm gonna strike them with pestilence and disinherit them and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. God is confronting the realities of grumbling with his glory. And what he does is he reveals what it really is. The first thing that it really is, is that it's a despising of God. We all have things we despise. We all have a list, right? I'll tell you a little bit about my list. I despise, this is just a little bit of honesty. I despise the overactive windshield wiper. Like if I'm riding shotgun, if I'm riding shotgun with someone and it's barely drizzling, and they've got it on the like full, I despise it. It makes my skin crawl. I, I, I wanna be like, seriously, it's just barely, it, it's barely raining, please turn it down. Uh, it's a little bit about me. I despise the overactive windshield wiper. I despise wet socks. Have you ever done the like log ride at Six Flags or Disney and then you walk around for like seven hours? with wet socks, like squish, squish. It's between your toes and it's hot outside. You ever done that? I despise it. There's nothing worse than having a wet sock wedged between your toes for like four hours. I hate it. I would be a happy man if I never spend another day, never walk another mile with wet socks. Uh, Sweaty milk, anyone? Maybe this is just in my house. Uh, I'm not gonna name any names, but you know, sometimes someone will like fix breakfast and then leave the milk on the counter. And then later you come and you're ready for your cereal, but the, the milk is sweaty and warm. I'm like, I'm good with dry cereal. I, I'm out on that milk that didn't make it back to the fridge. I despise it. You feel it with each of those things? Despising something is like, ugh, 
ugh, like everything about it, it's like, it's like wet socks, it's like yucky warm milk, like I don't want anything to do with it. And what God is saying is that when you're grumbling about life circumstances, that's what you're saying to him. What you're saying is, ugh, I don't, I don't want you in my life. I would be fine if I didn't have to deal with you anymore. He's saying, listen, what's under your grumbling is that you're despising me. I am sovereign. I am in control of the details of your life. A sparrow doesn't fall to the earth without my knowledge and direction. I know the hair on your head. Nothing has arrived at your doorstep that didn't first come by way of my good and gracious hand, even the painful things I see. And in that moment, when you begin to grumble, you are saying, ugh, God, I could deal with, with you just distancing yourself from me if that would be okay. And then on the heels of it, he says, and it's the reason is because we don't believe him. He says, how long will they despise me? How long will they not believe in me? I've shown them all of these wonderful things I've done. This last year, I had the chance for my boys to meet Tim Tebow, who's like a real hero at our house. They've both read his biography. They're, they love the like speech for those college football fans, the speech that he made the year that they, after losing, came back and won the national championship. Like, Tebow's a deal at our house, whatever. So. I had the chance to get them to meet Tebow uh, through a friend that was like, yeah, we can work it out. You get to come to this deal. And uh, I wanted it to be a surprise to my boys. So at night, they're getting ready for bed. I was like, tomorrow there's something special going on. And so uh, you, you're actually gonna get up early tomorrow. I'm gonna wake you up like almost an hour early and we're gonna go do this thing. And, to, and I'm gonna take you late to school. You're gonna miss a little bit of school. I was like, but I promise it's good. You're gonna like this. And my boys, they gave me permission to share the story. My, you know, my two boys were like undone by this. Stomping around, throwing their backpack, like this is, how early do we have to wake up? You're gonna wake us up when? And I was like, dudes, I promise, trust me, about nine o'clock tomorrow morning, you're gonna be eating all of your words. You're gonna feel really embarrassed by it. And like, Whatever, dad, this is And then I'm gonna have to miss school? I was like, yes, yes, you're gonna miss a little bit of school since when are you so, no, I can't miss school. So we go through this whole thing that night and I was like, ah, I just wish you guys would trust me. Like, don't you know my track record? Come on. I didn't help. Uh, <laughs> and so they wake up the next morning, we get to the spot, we're in the spot and all of a sudden Tim Tebow walks in. And they're both like, it's Tim Tebow. I was like, I know. Uh, they got to hug him and take a picture. They got a signed football. We literally, they're like skipping out of this building afterwards with their signed footballs. And I was like, can we just pause for a second? Do you remember the stomping around last night, the throwing of the backpack? The... And uh, it was just a moment of clarity and conviction for me because I was able to say, I get it, guys. I spend a good chunk of my life like that. Like when things show up on the doorstep, I... My mentor used to tell me the difference between what you know and what you believe is what you do. The difference between what you know and what you believe is what you do. And so frequently, my beliefs are displayed by my grumbling. That what I'm saying is, God, I don't actually believe what you've told me to be true. That you're for me. That you'll work everything together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. That I, I so quickly revert to the spiral 
You see, when glory shows up, when the goodness of God is present with us, it reveals grumbling for what it is, and we go, oh, it's despising God and it's not believing God. That's what I'm actually doing. The second thing that glory does is it confronts our grumbling is that it, it actually provides the groundwork, the motivation for merciful pardon. I want you to hear as Moses prays to God, God just said, all right, I'm gonna wipe the people out. He's training Moses up as a mediator. He's bringing him into the process with him. And I want you to hear the way that Moses prays in response to this word from God. Listen to what he appeals to. He's going to appeal to God's fame and the revelation of his character, both displays of his glory. That's what he's gonna appeal to. I want you to hear it in these verses, verses 13 through 20. This is what he says. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them. They're gonna tell the inhabitants of this land, they, they have heard of you, O Lord, or they've heard you, that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face. Your cloud stands over them. You go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, and this is the phrase that Moses heard when he asked God to show him his glory. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. You hear, Moses appeals to God's glory for forgiveness. You know what he doesn't appeal to? He doesn't say, well, God, these people are really pretty good. I think they're just kind of misunderstood. It's been hard, it's hot out there in the wilderness. God, you need to forgive them. They're really pretty good people that are trying their best, God. He doesn't say they're so precious. You, you think they're so wonderful, cute, lovely, you desire them. He doesn't appeal to any of that. What he says is, God, your glory is on display. It has been associated with these people for the benefit of your reputation internationally. Spare them. And God hears and answers that prayer. Listen, it is humbling and it is true. The reason God extends his mercy to sinful grumblers and malcontents is because of his commitment to his own glory, not because of anything that we can commend to God about how good we are. When we arrive in glory, welcomed by the grace of Jesus into the presence of the Father, none of us will stand there will, there will not be one ounce of any part of us that says we're here because we were basically pretty good or we made a good choice or a good decision or look at what we've done. We will say it was all grace according to his glory. God, thank you for being true to your perfect character. The appeal for pardon is based on glory. You see, it revealed that they despised God and they didn't believe God but it also became the grounds for their pardon. And lastly, 
it also demands just punishment. I'm not going to read the fullness of these verses, but I wanna show them to you. In verses 26 through 38, God is clear. He is clear that because his glory is gonna cover the fullness of the earth, in verses 21 through 25, he says, as surely as my glory is gonna envelop the whole earth, he says, because of that, judgment has to be executed. And then God explains the, the execution. I just want you to see, he, he's like not mincing words. It's like uncomfortably clear with these people because what he says is your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness in verse 29. In verse 32, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. Verse 33, in case you didn't hear it, your dead bodies are gonna lie in the wilderness. And then in the following verses, what he says is you're gonna know my displeasure. You're gonna come to a full end there they shall die. What is he doing? He is declaring that because of his glory, if God's glory is gonna saturate the whole of the created order, remaking it and purifying it, if God's glory is going to become the story of all, it means that anything that stands against God's glory has to be eradicated. It has to be cleansed from the system. And so we've got this really difficult tension with the descent of God's glory in the context of a bunch of grumblers, and it's this. He displays his glory by showing his mercy and by pouring out judgment. The coin of God's glory has two sides, and the two sides are mercy and judgment. And we as a people are standing before this glorious God as grumblers and malcontents wondering, how are we going to navigate this territory with this God? You see, a grumbling people confronted by the glory of God desperately need a mediator. They desperately need a mediator. Did you hear it in this text? Moses stood before them, between God and them, and he said, no, 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 God, spare them. I know that your glory is, dis is displayed by your wrathful judgment. I know that to be true of you, God, but would you show mercy? Would you show pardon? And he stood between God and man, and what he was able to do as a faithful mediator was to secure pardon. As those final verses made clear, what he was not able to do was to deliver the promised land. Moses and that whole generation did not enter the promised land. All of their bodies were going to end up in the desert. That's what God said. But friends, I want you to hear this good news. There's one greater than Moses, one that was promised in Moses' own time, that there would be a prophet one greater even than Moses, the better mediator, that would stand between a sea of grumbling people and the holiness and the glory of God and would mediate the relationship. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And what we dis see displayed in his life and in his death, we see the glory coin of God on full display. When you see Jesus bleeding and dying on the cross, what everyone present and everyone throughout history is able to say definitively is this, God hates sin and he's going to do something about it. And in the death of Jesus and the glorious resurrection of Jesus in that same act, what God is declaring is by the way, 
My mercy is sufficient. My mercy has been opened up. The great Puritan thinkers used to say that the mercy and the justice of God kiss at the cross. Fully embodied in one act, in a moment in history, God, the glorious one. And to those who come to place their trust in Jesus, to run to the cross and say, I need a mediator. I have despised God. I have not believed in him. I need one to stand between me and God. Jesus says, come and place your trust in me. And listen, I am the greater mediator that won't just secure your pardon, but I will secure your entrance to the promised land. You see, I absorbed the fullness of the punishment all the way down to the bottom. And in that moment where I was scorned and despised, where the crowd spit on me and said, I want nothing to do with you. And where our voices as grumblers and malcontents have joined in and said, yes, we despise him. He looks and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. He extends the radical and full mercy of God to a people in a way that Moses could only mirror in a small way. You see, this word speaks a better word over every circumstance in your life that right now tempts you towards grumbling. What we can all of a sudden do is we can go back to that place where we feel like a mole at two in the morning. All we can see is the thing that's pressing on us and we can say, ah, this is dark and this is painful. This does feel like wilderness. They do look like giants. And then in that space, what we can say is, I serve a God who wins his greatest victories in the valley, in the darkness. He has secured it, and it's mine. And as our heart begins to believe it, as we begin to receive it, as the gospel begins to saturate our soul, now gospel gratitude paves the way for his goodness to flood into our souls. You see, gospel gratitude is what what glory transforms grumbling into. No longer grumbling, but going, God, look at what you have done in Jesus. You are going to conquer, you are going to, your goodness is going to pour into the points of my greatest pain, such that with anticipation, while still in the midst of it, I can say, my God reigns. And with gratitude, I will wait. You see, whereas grumbling grinds the gears of God's goodness, Gospel gratitude it prepares the way. It, if we just want to stick with our alliteration, what we could say is that gospel gratitude greases, it greases the gears of God's goodness, right? It's a lot of G's. Friends, I don't know what you're in the middle of, but I know this. Jesus is conquered. You're in the midst of a good story even if it's a tough chapter. The glory of God is on full display in the person and the work of Jesus. You can set your gaze on him. You can say thank you even before you know why. And you can wait because the goodness of God is chasing after you. It's coming. Don't you want to be that sort of people? The sort of people that are not grumblers but are grateful in every moment knowing that our God reigns. Don't you want to be that sort of people? I certainly do. Yeah, let me pray for us. Our Father, we bless you and we thank you. 
We thank you for what you have accomplished on our behalf in the person of Jesus. We thank you for the display of your perfect character at the cross. Would you forgive us? Forgive me for the places where I have despised you as I grumble. I pray that you would transform us into a grateful people, that we would be on guard against grumbling in every area of our lives, and that we would experience the great joys of being a unified community that's experiencing the realities of your glory descending in our midst. So as we hunger for you in this season, would you reveal yourself in these ways? We look forward to the ways you're gonna do it, God. We bless you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.